chapter 42. We kind of led into that at the end of chapter 41, talking there about the harbinger of good news, or the herald of good tidings, to Zion and to Jerusalem, who uh, is a true prophet. Not one of them, in verse 26, one of the idolaters, could foretell anything. My servant whom I sustain, my chosen one in whom I delight. Him I have endowed with my spirit, he will dispense justice to the nations. So his mission is to Zion and to Jerusalem, in chapter 41, verse 27, but it's also to the nations. Why is that? Because Zion and Jerusalem, that entity of God's people that repents, or that portion of God's people that renews the covenant with the Lord, comes out of all nations. Zion is born in the Exodus out of all nations, on the eve of the destruction of the nations. Kind of like Israel was born in the Sinai wilderness at its exodus out of Egypt. The spirit endowment of the servants in chapter 42 emphasizes his spiritual qualities. In chapter 42, more the spiritual mission of the servant is emphasized. Whereas, say, in chapter 41... It was more the militaristic aspect, the conquest. So in chapter 41, where he and the Lord's people conquer the promised land, or reconquer the land on behalf of the Lord. And in chapter 46 also, there is more the militaristic aspect. In chapters 44 and 45, you have more the political aspect, where he fulfills the role of Cyrus the conqueror. Here we have a division between the spiritual and the temporal missions or roles of the servant. And Isaiah does that, he divides them up like that for a purpose. For one thing, because there was no one historical type in Israel's past that captured all of those things that the servant would do. The servant has many heroes who serve as types, or many types in the history of Israel who fulfilled various roles. And Isaiah can't draw on one particular type because for the first time in the end of days there will be this servant who will kind of do all of those things that former servants of God accomplished. There are reasons like that for dividing the spiritual and temporal functions of the servant. So this spirit endowment here is alluding to the spiritual mission of the servant. He will dispense justice to the nations. That's a spiritual function. The Lord sustains him and delights in him. He's a chosen one. But so are the Lord's people generally. They're also called his servant, his corporate servant. They're also called chosen of God. And they're also endowed with the Spirit. And they also have a redemptive mission to the nations of the world. The Lord's righteous people do that. They, in that sense, do what the servant does. The servant is an exemplar to them in those particular attributes. He's on a higher level of the spiritual ladder than they are because the Lord sends him to minister to them just as Moses ministered to Israel. So the servant ministers to God's people in the latter days. Whom did God endow with his spirit anciently? He endowed Moses with his spirit and he endowed King David with his spirit. We'll see how Cyrus... There in chapter 45, verse 1, is anointed of God. And that was an Israelite royal accession motif, which means that 
the God of Israel anointed the king of Israel through the agency of Samuel the prophet, for example, when he anointed King David. And when he anointed King David, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. It records that in the book of Samuel. So we have here in Isaiah a division of those two ideas. In chapter 45, verse 1, the servant is anointed. But in chapter 42, verse 1, he's endowed with the Spirit. So you see how Isaiah divides up things of the past to differentiate between the spiritual and the temporal missions of the servant. The purpose of the anointing of the servant or his spirit endowment is that he may fulfill a particular role. It's not just because the Lord loves this person and endows him above everybody else and so forth and it's for himself and all of that. No. The servant is anointed and endowed with the Spirit in order to fulfill his mission, which is a redemptive mission to his people, to God's people, who come out of all nations. When it says he will dispense justice to the nations, it implies that at the present time, or at the time of the servant's mission, or prior to it, there is no justice, or there is little justice. And the servant is sent to restore the idea of justice. And justice has two aspects. Justice means heralding the time of calamity for the wicked, and also to intervene on behalf of the righteous, to bring them out of oppression and bondage. That's the justice of God in its twofold aspect. Verse 2, he will not shout or raise his voice to make himself heard in public. He's not going to stand on street corners and shout and bang his timbrels, but he's going to go about his mission in a quiet way. That's God's way. Even a bruised reed he will not break, a dim wick he will not snuff out. He will perform the work of justice in the cause of truth. The bruised reed and the dim wick in Isaiah are word links to, first of all, the Egyptians. Egypt is called a bruised reed in the book of Isaiah, as we saw in chapter 36 or 37, where Pharaoh is likened to a broken reed, which if a man leans on it, it will pierce his hand instead of giving him support. And Dimwick is a word link to the Babylonians in chapter 43, verse 17. And so here we see that the servant's mission is a universal mission. It encompasses Babylonians and Egyptians both. And that's consistent with his mission to the nations. The Babylonians are up in Mesopotamia. The Egyptians are in the south, historically speaking. So in other words, it's the whole world, the whole of the ancient known world was encompassed in this servant's mission. And who was that servant anciently? It was probably Isaiah himself as a type for the latter-day servant. The servant's mission is to all nations from one end of the world to the other. And that's the message given here. But it's also, of course, to lift up that which is weak or to redeem that which is already bruised or pressed, which is almost ready to be snuffed out, it's so dim, whose faith and hope has almost perished, and those are the people to whom he comes, people who are like that, people who need to be lifted up and sustained and empowered. That is his mission. Earlier we saw that those are the poor and the needy, 
with whom the Lord makes a covenant and whom he redeems from poverty and from their needy condition. He will perform the work of justice in the cause of truth, again implying that at that time there may be a work of justice performed, but not in the cause of truth, or there is a potential work of justice. And also in chapter 48, the Lord's people there, in their wicked aspect or in their corrupt aspect, are performing works that are not based on truth and in righteousness. And so the servant takes them back to a proper performance of things. He brings forth the truth of God, as we saw at the end of chapter 41. Verse 4, Neither shall he himself grow dim or be bruised until he has brought about justice in the earth. The isles await his law. So he's a lawgiver, like Moses, and like Moses, he himself doesn't grow dim. That implies that he has extraordinary powers. God empowers him and endows him with power, like Moses, whose strength did not fail, whose eyes did not grow dim, it says in Deuteronomy. So here there's a close identification with Moses and with the type of person that he was. No one will be able to prevent him from fulfilling his mission as they have prevented others by killing the prophets in the past, and stoning them and so forth. That will not happen in this case. Chapter 52 does mention that he will be marred, but also in chapter 57 it says the Lord will heal him. So there's no possibility that he will not fulfill his mission or that he will be prevented by his enemies. If he is marred and then healed, that would imply that he doesn't have a lot of power to begin with. But that after he's healed, that will be his empowerment. There seems to be the idea that there will be opposition to him initially, but that God will empower him sufficiently that he will fulfill his mission. The Hebrew word until, ad, doesn't necessarily mean literally until like it does in the English. It often means so that, so that he will bring about justice in the earth. The isles await his law, again showing that his mission as lawgiver is not like that of Moses exactly, because Moses' mission was confined to the Lord's people Israel whom he brought out of Egypt. A servant's mission extends to all nations. He's a lawgiver to all nations because he comes in the name of the Lord. He's a herald of good tidings to God's people who are out among the nations. He calls from among the nations to Zion to escape the destructions that are coming upon the nations. How does he do that? By teaching them God's law. How can they escape destruction except by entering into a covenant with God to serve him and to keep his commandments, to keep the law of his covenant? Then they qualify for redemption or protection. So the, the law and the word of God are an important part. As we mentioned before, that it was the breaking of the covenant, which was a spiritual thing that led to a physical exile. And in order to bring a physical return, there needs to be a spiritual repentance and a spiritual renewal of the covenant. The spiritual condition precedes the physical condition. Thus says the Lord God, who frames and suspends the heavens, who gives form to the earth and its creatures, the breath of life to the people upon it, spirit to those who walk on it. Now all through these next chapters you'll see this motif of God as creator. 
the all-powerful God who rules in the heavens and rules in the earth, who has complete control over everything. And always, whenever that motif comes up, something else comes up along with it, and that is that that is the God who sustains or empowers or vindicates or sends his servant. The heavens and the earth are very much part of one another. As we saw earlier, those who enter the covenant, ascend the spiritual ladder, attain to exaltation, become like the stars or the hosts of heaven. And they're named, they're individuals, and they do the Lord's command. That's very much part of the whole milieu here. God can bring those powers of heaven to bear on any given situation on earth. And he does at times. And he will, if necessary, in the case of the servant. This is also a creation motif, of course. And these creation motifs throughout these chapters, chapter 40 through 46, keep alternating one after another. We have chaos and creation, chaos, creation, chaos and creation. For example, near the end of chapter 41, we have those dignitaries, the authorities of the world, trodden upon like mud. They become like clay, which are chaos motifs. They are reduced to an elemental state or to being a non-entity, whereas the servant is created, or Israel is created, or Zion is created. And so these motifs keep alternating. And here we have creation. Who gives form to the earth and its creatures, the breath of life to the people upon it, spirit to those who walk on it. And without that breath of life or that spirit, which are here synonymous or in parallel, people would be nothing. And Isaiah has said that earlier in chapter 40. He calls people but grass and herbage, and the spirit of the Lord breathes within them, and other than that, they're nothing. Verse 6, that creator God who does all of that, who gives life, now says about his servant, I, the Lord, have rightfully called you, or called you in righteousness, either way, and will grasp you by the hand. I have created you and appointed you to be a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. Here we have that identification of the creator God empowering his servant, calling him, grasping him by the hand. Now, the grasping by the hand is an election motif. So he is an elect of God. He's called in righteousness. Here there's a confirmation of his calling, actually. Israel, or people of God, are also called. They're called from the ends of the earth to Zion. They're also called to be his servants, as we shall see, and as we have seen. And the servant here is their model or their exemplar in that calling. They're called in righteousness or rightfully. He's called rightfully because he fulfills all the Lord's will. Will grasp you by the hand. That's an empowering idea. It's um, an endowment motif. And that was done in Mesopotamia by the God calling the king and empowering him or calling him as king. It's called a royal accession motif. And there he is made a king by the God to rule in the house of Israel, in this case, but to rule over God's people. I have created you, so here the servant himself is created, and appointed you to be a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. 
We saw in chapter 40 how the whole purpose of God's creation begins to be narrowed down to the idea that there are these exalted beings who ascend to a celestial exaltation. Or there are people of God who hope in Him, who wait for Him, who covenant with Him and ultimately end up in that exalted state. And then was introduced the servant, as if he is the epitome of such exalted individuals. And the same thing appears here in miniature. He's the creator of all this, the heavens and the earth, and the people who walk upon it, and he's the creator of the servant. As if he's the epitome of his creation. And appointed you. So the calling and the empowerment of the servant is for a particular purpose. He's appointed to do something. It is to serve God's people, to minister to them. The appointing is a motif and it's a word link throughout the book of Isaiah that identifies the servant. It's a rhetorical link to other servant passages or other royal passages. Like in chapter 9, there is a son of David who is appointed and that is a word link to this passage. All these passages are various descriptions of the one individual as we understand from these word links and from the structures of the book. These chapters... Chapters 41 through 46 are parallel with chapters 9 through 12 in the bifid structure of the book of Isaiah. So those chapters are more properly read together. They can't be isolated one from another. He's a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. And it's interesting that covenant and light here should be in parallel, as if they're synonymous ideas. The light to the nations is the covenant for the people. The Lord's covenant with His people who come out of the nations is like a light. It's the only light that's out there, really. There are those who light their way with mere sparks in chapter 50, verse 11. And they reject the greater light, which is the Lord's covenant, which is also the Lord's servant. He personifies that light and He personifies God's covenant. Now, God's covenant consists of the Word of God and the Law of God, which are the conditions of the covenant. And when a person keeps the Word of God in all fullness, and when he obeys the Law of God in its fullness, then he begins to personify those things. The same as in the book of John, in the New Testament, John calls Christ the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why would Christ be called the Word? Because he himself obeys every word of God. And also Christ says that he's the law, right? In other scriptures, Christ said, I am the law. How can he be the law? Because he himself keeps all the law. And so can we. We can also, or anyone can, begin to personify God's word and law. And to the degree that he keeps God's word and law, To that degree, he personifies them also. And when he does that completely, he can also personify the covenant, of which the law and word are the conditions. And that is what the servant does, and that's why he can be called a covenant for the people. He is the covenant. And when God sends him, it means that for the people to covenant with God, they must covenant with him, or that he is the mediator of the covenant as Moses was in the Sinai wilderness. The people in the Sinai wilderness could not make the covenant with God alone, because God had sent Moses to mediate the covenant. 
they had to do it through Moses, God's appointed servant, because God's house is a house of order. And so it will be again that the Lord will send his servant as a mediator of his covenant with his people at that time. The servant personifies the covenant, so he's qualified to be a mediator. And that covenant and that servant are also a light to the nations. He personifies light, as Christ says, I am the light of the world and the life of the world, both. He personifies those things. How then does that tie in with Christ being a light to the world? Well, it depends how you read it. When you understand that the servant is on the lower level in the spiritual ladder than Christ himself is, then that eradicates the problem. The servant is a light, and Christ is a light. One is the greater light, Christ is. One is the lesser light. Nevertheless, they're both a light. Anciently in Mesopotamia, the kings of Mesopotamia and of Egypt were called the light of their peoples, or the sun of their peoples. They emanated light to them. King David was called a light in Israel. So we have some historical types here for that. The light is also a creation motif, and is contrasted in Isaiah with the king of Assyria, who personifies darkness. He is darkness. He personifies darkness. The one is a power of chaos, and the other is a power of creation. The sun is healing and beneficial to the earth, to everything upon the earth. And so is light. Light generally is. But darkness is not. Darkness is tending to chaos. He empowers him and recognizes him or appoints him to be a covenant or a light to the nations. For what purpose? Verse 7, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from confinement and from prison those who sit in darkness. Very much like Moses in Egypt who released the captives there and brought them in an exodus out. Is there an exodus mentioned here? Yes, in verse 16. And all through these chapters, actually, the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness are recurring motifs. In chapter 43, verse 2, for example, where they cross the waters and traverse the rivers, they walk through the fire, and so forth, as they come In chapter 43, verse 16, the Lord provides a way in the sea, a path through the mighty waters. He dispatches chariots and horses, armies of men in full strength, just like the Egyptians. All of this is the result of the servant's mission, when he opens the eyes that are blind. Notice the spiritual idea again before the physical idea. The eyes of the blind have to be opened so that they can renew the covenant with the God of Israel and recognize who they are and who he is. And then they're released from captivity or from confinement, from prison. From prison, those who sit in darkness. Here darkness is contrasted with the light, which is the servant. Darkness in the book of Isaiah is personified by the king of Assyria, so that implies that he releases them from the power of the king of Assyria. And we see that in other contexts of the book of Isaiah also. The king of Assyria takes captive peoples of the world. He keeps them in bondage, very much like Pharaoh did in Egypt. He's kind of like a latter-day Pharaoh, in that sense. And the servant's job is that of Moses to release the ten tribes out of Assyria, or out of the power of the king of Assyria. And of course, there are many other levels in which one can read this verse. 
if the servant does this, if he is a savior of these people, then certainly God himself does it also and is a savior. Because on the spiritual ladder, there are gradations. And the ones above are exemplars to those below. And the highest exemplar of all is the Lord himself. He is the perfect savior. There are saviors like Moses, or like the servant, who save God's people or redeem them from their condition of bondage and oppression. And they do so in the name of the Lord and on lesser levels than God does. They themselves emulate God to the extent that they're able. And the people emulate God's servants. So there is always this one above who is an exemplar on a higher level on every rung of the spiritual ladder. Also the blind is a word link. Look over in verse 18 and you see, O you deaf, listen, O you blind, look and see. And it tells you who the blind are there through the rhetorical connection. Who's blind but my own servant? Or so deaf as the messenger I have sent. Who is blind like those I have commissioned, as uncomprehending as the servant of the Lord? Seeing much but not giving heed, with open ears hearing nothing. Who is he talking about? His servant that he's just sent, who is the light? No, he's talking about his corporate servant, the people of God as a whole, who are also called his servant. You remember in chapter 41, verse 8, he says, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Verse 9, chapter 41 says, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, call from its farthest limits. To you I say, you are my servant. I have accepted you and not rejected you. The blind whom the one servant, the individual servant, releases or whose eyes he opens are the corporate servant of the people of Israel as a whole. They are in a blind and deaf state. They are captive in Egypt or among the nations of the world. They're the ones whom Moses, or the servant in this case, releases. The ones whose eyes he opens. Isaiah establishes that idea through word links. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not relinquish my glory to another, nor my praise to rot idols. And this is alluding to the idea of idolatry, which is the cause of blindness. All through these chapters we'll see that the cause of blindness is idolatry. The people are so into their material possessions and their idols that they have become spiritually blind. There's a great parody on this in chapter 44 where Isaiah makes a huge joke of the idolaters. And he's talking about all of their idolatry and all the things, how they make these statues and these works of men's hands. In verse 18 he says, They have become unaware and insensible. Their eyes are glazed so they cannot see. Their minds are incapable of discernment. And we'll come to that. In Isaiah, blindness is caused by idolatry, by worshipping the works of men's hands. So when he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not relinquish my glory to another. means he has nothing to do with idols. In order to See, in order to recognize God, you have to put away the idols. Just like in the first commandment, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no gods before me. That's the deal you make. In order to covenant with God, you must come to him, you must reject the idols. You cannot serve both. I will not relinquish my glory to another, nor my praise. Actually, he does glorify Israel. 
he says so. In uh, chapter 46, for example, verse 13, he says, I will grant deliverance in Zion and to Israel my glory. How so if he doesn't give his glory or praise to another? He doesn't, because when the people of Israel become one with him, they partake of his glory. They too are exalted and glorified. The glory is God's glory that is shared with his people. The glory is God's and the praise is his. It implies here in this verse that glory and praise are given to idols right now. You look at any advertisement in the modern newspaper and what do you see? Or on TV, on the media. You'll see this beautiful, glossy car and you'll see all these people going, ah, you know, like that, praising this wonderful vehicle and so on. Modern appliances or anything on TV sets upon which people place so much emphasis. And those things are glorified and praised. Well, that glory and that praise doesn't belong to those works of men's hands. It belongs to God who made all things. Verse 9, The prophecies of the former events indeed came to pass, but new things I yet foretell. Before they spring up, I declare them to you. And this is harking back to the end of chapter 41, where God, through his servants, prophesied the future. And whatever he prophesied through his servants came to pass exactly as he said. And it was all fulfilled. The judgments of God pronounced upon God's people through Isaiah, anciently, for example, were fulfilled in that day. But because Isaiah can be read on two distinct levels, according to the structures of the book of Isaiah, there are two applications of Isaiah's prophecies, one historical and one latter day. Therefore, these things have relevance again, these words of Isaiah. So do the prophecies of the servant have relevance. New things I yet foretell. Before they spring up, I declare them to you. How does he do that? Well, he does it verbally through the servant, and he does it through the book of Isaiah. There will be new things again in the latter days. And how does he foretell them? He foretells them through the ancient types that are included in the book of Isaiah. The new things, in that sense, are old things that repeat themselves. In chapter 46, verse 10, it says, I foretell the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done. The end is foretold from the beginning through the kinds of things that happened in the beginning or in Israel's earlier history. That foretelling of events validates God or his servant. No one else can do that. There are fortune tellers and there are diviners and there are people who are into statistics, and they say, by the year 2000, we'll be at this point, and how do you know? God is able to change all that, and he will, and he does. And radically and dramatically, he will change things around, and it will be totally unexpected among the idolaters. That validates God, the fact that he can foretell the future, and the fact that he has orchestrated human history, so that what happens in the end time will be a repeat of many things that happened in the past. He says, new things I yet foretell. The fact is that nothing really new happens in the latter days. The new things in Isaiah are generally particular combinations of things that happened in the past. That is new. But Isaiah's way of prophesying the future is always to take something out of the past and prophesy a new version of it. 
a repeat of something in the past. That is kind of his methodology. He confines himself to that. He doesn't just go spouting words and say, the Lord is going to do this and he's going to do that and he's going to do this. No, he uses things out of the past and kind of talks about them in a futuristic sense, as if they would happen again, like a new exodus. So the new things really are new, but they're based on ancient types. They're new versions of old events, in that sense. Before they spring up, I declare them to you, both in the written word in the book of Isaiah, and also by the servant who declares the future. And the servant too confines himself to that. And you look in any prophecies at all, anywhere, that concern the latter days, and you'll have that idea present. The things that are prophesied for the future have types and shadows in the past. Verse 10, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth. Let the sea roar and all that lives in it, the isles and they who inhabit them. This here begins a song of salvation. Because when the servant fulfills his mission, prophesies the future, people take action, they give up their idolatry, they renew the covenant with God, they come out of exile, and they're redeemed, saved from the destructions of the last days. And they live on into the millennium. If you went through that scenario, wouldn't you sing praises to God? I would. I would want to participate in that, and I would exalt and praise God. And that is what the Israelites did after they came out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 14, I think it is, the whole chapter is a song of praise and thanksgiving to God for His deliverance. Sing to the Lord a new song. That's a common motif in the book of Isaiah and also in the book of Psalms. The new songs are always sung when God intervenes in history in some way and delivers His people. Sing His praise from the end of the earth because from the end of the earth is where the people come from in an exodus. They don't all come in one single exodus like the exodus out of Egypt. They come in an exodus out of all different countries in droves. So there are many exoduses going on or people coming in groups from different parts of the earth. We saw in chapter... 11, that they come from the four directions of the earth in an exodus. It says, He will gather the scatter of Judah from the four directions of the earth. He will dry up the tongue of the Egyptian sea by his mighty wind to provide a way on foot. There shall be a pathway out of Assyria for the remnant of his people shall be left as there was for Israel when it came up from the land of Egypt. In verse 11, all these nations are named from which they come, from one end of the world to the other. Let the sea roar and all that lives in it the isles and they who inhabit them. Uh, the sea is also a metaphor for the people. There are streams of people, or waters that are types and shadows of people. There are the waters of chaos that are destructive and also the waters of creation that are a metaphor for the righteous. So we have waters or seas as metaphor for the wicked and the righteous. The isles and they who inhabit them. And these... Uh, Passage of Isaiah, like in verse 14, the isles await his law, the isles and they who inhabit them, in verse 10. There's a lot of uh, mention of the islands of the world. They could also be continents, of course. The idea being that Israel is scattered far and wide, and no matter where they're scattered, even to the most distant places, they will return. Let the desert and its cities raise their voice, the villages where Kedar dwells, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy and cry out from the tops of the mountains. Kedar anciently referred to the nomadic peoples who dwelt 
in the regions of the Negev Desert and the Arabian Peninsula, and the inhabitants of Sela, Sela means rock, it's also a place, anciently, it implies that there are people who are coming, responding to the servant's call to repent and return, renew the covenant with God, even from those places where one would not necessarily expect, because they were also non-Israelite peoples. But those names, Kedar and Selah, could equally be code names for a modern reenactment of this ancient event. They could be talking about people who are dwelling in outlying places, who are not necessarily pure Israelites, who also qualify for the Lord's redemption. They cry out from the tops of the mountains, so from both the desert and the mountains, they are being saved. Oh, let them give glory to the Lord, and in the isles speak out in praise of Him. Why? Because He has wrought redemption for them. He has brought them out from places where they probably would not be expected to be able to come. Especially in the conditions of the latter days, when the servant fulfills his mission, there will be lots of oppression. There will be similar conditions to Pharaoh's bondage of the Israelites in Egypt. And it will seem unlikely that the servant or that anyone could really do all that gathering like that. But the fact is that it will be done, and that every living soul of God's people will be redeemed that repents and renews the covenant with him. Verse 13, The Lord will come forth like a warrior, his passions arouse like a fighter. He will give the war cry, raise the shout of victory over his enemies. And you might say, well, the Lord is peaceful. God is a pacifist. In chapter 41, however, we saw that the servant was a warrior, and he conquered the land just like Joshua did for the Israelites. And God's people there were helping him. Chapter 41, verse 2. Chapter 41, verse 15. On the spiritual ladder, there is always an exemplar of everything. And who is the highest exemplar of all? God himself is. And he too is a warrior. He's not above being a warrior. And he himself gets involved in the warfare. Because God's people alone don't have enough strength or power to do it by themselves. So he too gives the war cry, raises the shout of victory over his enemies. The arousing of his passions implies that he, for a time, doesn't seem to be involved, but then suddenly he gets involved and intervenes. Verse 14, For a long time I have been silent, he says, keeping still and restraining myself. So there had been a long period when maybe God was dead, or they thought God was dead, and now suddenly he intervenes in the affairs of his people. Keeping still and restraining myself for several reasons, because God is long-suffering and patient, and he doesn't get involved in everything compulsively. There's a plan involved here. And now I will scream like a woman in labor and breathe hard and fast all at once. Well, every woman knows what that's all about. And that's how it will be when God intervenes. It will be dramatic. It will be hard. It will also be a birth and a deliverance. The birth motif keeps reappearing. And what is born, chapter 66, it is Zion that is born. And before Zion is born, the servant is born. And that is called the birth pangs of the Messiah in Judaism. And it means that when God's people go into travail because of hard bondage like in Egypt, the whole people go into travail, into suffering, and they deliver a son. And God chooses him, like Moses, as his people's deliverer. 
So the person that she gives birth to turns around and delivers her, as Moses did. And all of that's kind of implied in the birth imagery through the book of Isaiah. And here it is linking that idea of birth to God's intervention in the sense of conquest of enemies. It doesn't happen out there in the desert somewhere by itself. Part of what's going on here is the destruction and the conquest of enemies. The deliverance out of Egypt was not complete until Pharaoh's armies were destroyed. The exodus was the birth canal. Egypt gave birth to Israel in that sense. And so it will be again. It will be destruction and deliverance going on at the same time. Verse 15, I will lay waste mountains and hills and make all their vegetation wither. I will turn rivers into dry land and evaporate lakes. Well, mountains and hills also are a figure for nations, greater nations and lesser nations. We saw that in chapter 2, and we talked about mountains being a metaphor for nations. Here in, in chapter 19, vegetation also represents people. Isaiah calls them vegetation or herbage or grass or weeds, various places. And the rivers into dry land, chapter 37, the king of Assyria dries up the rivers. And the Lord does a lot of that through the agency of the king of Assyria. He does this destruction. He uses the king of Assyria as his instrument. And perhaps he does a lot of it through natural calamities as well. We're talking one level is both literal waste of mountains and vegetation and rivers and hills, but also figuratively where these things represent peoples, the wicked of the world. And of course it's a chaos motif. We've had creation and now we have chaos again. Alternating themes of chaos and creation. We'll see huge lakes evaporated in very dry places of the earth. We'll also see huge bodies of people wiped out just like they would be evaporated. Verse 16, Then will I lead the blind by a way they did not know, and guide them in paths unfamiliar. So the blind are a plural entity, like we discussed earlier. They're not the individual servant who's blind. His job is to open the eyes of the blind, and then to lead them in an exodus as Moses led Israel. When Moses first began his mission to the people of Egypt, or the Israelites in Egypt, they were blind. There had to be a whole series of miracles performed before they finally began to understand, hey, they had a God, a covenant God, who was willing to deliver them, who cared about them, who acknowledged their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as his people. And they all needed to be indoctrinated into that idea. And their eyes opened to those realities. And so it will be again. There are people out there now of the house of Israel, perhaps the ten lost tribes, in a lost and fallen state. Many of the Jews still don't even know they're Jews. There are many of the house of Israel who assimilated all down the generations in the intermingling of the seed of Israel with the nations of the world who don't even know who they are. And they will be alerted and their eyes will be opened to those things and to the possibilities of redemption in the Lord's covenant with his people. Then when their eyes are opened, then they will be delivered. Like it says in verse 7, to open the eyes of the blind to free captives from confinement. First the opening of the eyes of the blind, and then the freeing from confinement or from captivity. So when he says in verse 16, I will lead the blind by a way they did not know, he's really not saying he's going to lead them when they're still blind. Because they don't qualify for redemption in Exodus until their eyes are opened, until they acknowledge the God of Israel, until they covenant with him. 
But they were blind, and so he calls them the blind. A better idea of translating maybe, or an interpretation might be, then will I lead those who were blind by a way they didn't know. And guide them in paths unfamiliar. Now that is a very interesting idea, because the exodus will be a supernatural event. And we don't really know all the details of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and they're coming through the Red Sea. We heard that the waters stand on either side, and the cloud of glory covered them. But what happens under that cloud of glory? Could there be a time vacuum? Could there be a different spatial dimension there that happens? When it says a way they didn't know in paths unfamiliar, it could mean that there is a special provision made for them to walk through the elements so that they enter into a different dimension. Chapter 43, for example, verse 2, talks about them again crossing the waters and also walking through the fire. That alludes to the idea that there is a different set of circumstances for those who go on the exodus. The darkness confronting them I will turn into light, the uneven ground make level. These things I will not fail to perform. In chapter 40 we saw how the servant's role was to make the uneven ground level, meaning there should be no inequality among God's people. If there's no equality, if they're not one, they're not his. They're principally one with him, and therefore they're one with one another in him. And that uneven ground making level is a motif that follows all the way through Isaiah. In chapter 62, verse 10, we have that motif. Prepare the way for the people, which is the servant's job. Excavate, pave a highway cleared of stones. His job is to bring down the high things and lift up the low things, to make God's people one. And it is taught here through the imagery of uneven ground. Yes, there will be literally uneven ground. Yes, there will be literal darkness, and that will be turned into light. But also those things are figurative. The darkness confronting them is indeed spiritual darkness. It may be physical darkness. It may also be the king of Assyria who personifies darkness, who tries to prevent them from exiting in an exodus. He will turn it into light, the cloud of glory covering the Lord's people at the exodus out of Egypt, provided light for the Israelites. At night even, it was a light to them. There will be physical light, but it's also the servant. He is the light, we saw in verse 6. So that instead of the king of Assyria having power over them, God has power over them through his servant, through the ministry of his servant. Instead of them being in ignorance, they are brought to the light of the good news, the light of truth. Several different levels that we can interpret it, all based on ideas that Isaiah himself has in his book, not on things that we superimpose out of our own ideas onto Isaiah. can't do that. We must never do that. Isaiah defines darkness. Isaiah defines what light is. And so we must go by his definitions, not by our own. The uneven ground make level, that is also the way of return, the highway that is made smooth for the Lord's coming. The servant prepares the way for the people. There shall be highways and roads which shall be called the way of holiness. The way of return, in chapter 35, verse 8, the ransom of the Lord shall return, they shall come singing to Zion, verse 10 of chapter 35. Those things are all tied in with one another. 
The book of Isaiah is like a fabric. It has all of these linking ideas. And you cannot simply isolate one passage like this from another. These things I will not fail to perform, implying that there are some who say that that will never happen. Or how could that possibly be now? The Lord says He will do that. We must believe in Him, and we must believe Him. When He says it, we must not just believe in Him, we must believe Him, that He will do it. Verse 17, Those who trust in idols and esteem their images as gods shall retreat in utter confusion. That's the chaos motif. We have the creation motif of the light, and here we have chaos again. We have chaos in verse 15, and we had creation before that, connection with the servant. The utter confusion is the lot of the idolaters. Here we have contrast of the wicked and the righteous. The righteous who were blind, who were blind because of idolatry, now qualify for an exodus because they repented of their blindness. They put away their idols. And here, in fact, it's still alluding to the idea that there are some who are still clinging to their idols. Some did not repent. Some are still holding fast to their old ways that caused the blindness. And as a result of blindness, they retreat in utter confusion. They don't know what's going to happen to them. They're like a reed blown about in the wind. They will not even be aware, probably, of the redemption that the Lord has made for His people. The elect will be taken out, and the wicked will be left behind and destroyed And the wicked won't even know that there was another entirely different scenario going on for those who were taken out, for those who repented, for those whom they oppressed. Those who trust in idols and esteem their images as gods shall retreat in utter confusion. O you deaf, listen, O you blind, look and see. There are still a lot of God's people out there who are blind and deaf because they're still into idolatry. And he's trying to reclaim them too. The fact that it talks about the blind in verse 18 and 19 and about the blind in verse 16 and about the idolaters in verse 17 implies that there are still a lot of God's people into idolatry. Maybe most of those whom the latter-day servant will deliver in an exodus or whom God will deliver in an exodus through the agency of the servant will be blind. Just like most of the Israelites in Egypt in their situation of bondage were blind. Who is blind but my own servant, or so deaf as the messenger I've sent? Here the Lord is challenging and confronting and exhorting his people to come out of their blind state. They're his servant. Why do they need to be blind? If they're his servant, they may see. God can heal them. God can reveal to them his revelations. They're his servant, and they're a messenger as such of God. Who are they a messenger to? Well, to those who are still blind. If they repent and their eyes are opened, what should they do? Just enjoy themselves in the fact? No, then their job is to open the eyes of those who are still blind, as they were. And that accords with the different functions on the spiritual ladder. We saw that in chapter 40, the mission of Zion and Jerusalem was to minister to Jacob or Israel. And what are they to minister? To bring them out of their idolatry, out of their blindness, to an awareness of God's covenant so that they too may be redeemed from their blind and deaf state, so that they too may be redeemed at the time of God's redemption. So always they are a messenger. The servant is a messenger, as we saw in chapter 41. The harbinger, he calls him a messenger in another place. But everybody who has covenanted with God is his servant and is his messenger, on whatever level of the spiritual ladder he may be on. Who is blind like those I have commissioned? 
God commissions them. As uncomprehending as the servant of the Lord, they don't always fulfill their mission or their commission. They don't always fulfill their role as messenger or as servant. They may have been once, or their ancestors may have been, but now they're blind and uncomprehending. Seeing much but not giving heed with open ears, hearing nothing. And of course that is very much the condition in which the wicked find themselves. People who are wicked generally think they know more than others, right? Generally think they see things better than you do, and they have all kinds of reasons why. But they're into deception, into self-deception. They see, but they don't see the way God sees things. They don't see with spiritual eyes, they see with physical eyes. It is the will of the Lord that because of His righteousness, they magnify the law and become illustrious. That is the part they don't see in here, is the law of God, or His word, or His commandments. But if they did that, if they kept the law, then they would see, then they would hear. People of Israel said to Moses, we will do and we will hear. The rabbis teach that if you will keep the law, then you will see and understand. Then you'll comprehend. Isaiah also gives that idea in chapter 6, where he says, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand in their hearts, and repent and be healed. The seeing and the hearing, the real understanding comes from repentance, keeping the law of God, keeping the word of God, obeying His commandments. If they do that, if they magnify the law of God, instead of burying it somewhere, instead of letting it remain only in the back of their minds, then God can bless them. Then the blessings of the covenant will be theirs. And as the blessings of the covenant become theirs, they become illustrious as individuals and as God's people, as a nation. Just like the Israelites in the days of David and Solomon became illustrious people because they generally at that time obeyed the law of God. They were illustrious in the days of Moses and Joshua. All the blessings of the covenant were theirs because they magnified the law of God. They kept His commandments. And here he says, it is the will of the Lord that because of His righteousness they magnify the law. What does that mean? If you magnify the law, you are righteous. Or if you want to be righteous, you have to magnify the law, or you have to keep the law of God. That is God's definition of righteousness. We'll see later on that there are those who, in chapter 48, for example who are going through various performances and ordinances, but he says, it's not in truth and in righteousness. Like a nation practicing righteousness, not forsaking the precepts of their God, you take oaths in the name of the Lord, and invoke the God of Israel, though not in truth or in righteousness. You make a pretense of religion, in other words, but it's not God's definition of righteousness that you're following. It's your own self-righteousness. And on another level, righteousness is the Lord's servant himself. In chapter 41, verse 2, the servant personifies righteousness. He is righteousness itself. How so? Because he keeps the law and word of God. And when he does that, he's righteous. And to the degree that he does that, or that we do that, we personify righteousness also. So righteousness is a personification, it's a person. That means in verse 21 that the people of God who come out of a blind state magnify the law or will magnify the law because the servant is sent among them as a lawgiver. As in verse 4, the isles await his law. 
He's also a light to the nations to open the eyes of the blind. Through the servant's agency, the people eventually become illustrious. Just like the Israelites became illustrious through Moses' agency. What were they when Moses first came to them? They were slaves in Egypt. What were they when they entered the promised land? They were an exalted people of whom all the nations stood in awe. They were an illustrious people by that time. Did that happen spontaneously by themselves? No, Moses was sent and Moses ministered to them to that end. And so it will be again with the servant. Verse 21, that is God's will that this happen again. Instead, in verse 22, they are a people plundered and sacked, all of them trapped in holes, hidden away in dungeons. They have become a prey, yet no one rescues them, a spoil, yet none demands restitution. Does this contradict what was said in verse 21? No. It simply states the two different alternatives. You've got two alternatives here. Either you can magnify the law of God through the agency of the servant who ministers it and become illustrious, go into exodus, experience God's redemption, or you can suffer destruction and chaos and bondage, continue in your blindness. To be a people plundered and sacked in verse 22 means that you're under a covenant curse. It is the opposite of verse 21, which means you're under covenant blessing. You're illustrious. You have chosen something other. In chapter 10, the king of Assyria is sent to plunder God's people, the wicked of God's people, not the righteous. So if you're coming under a plundered state, it means the king of Assyria has power over you at this point. Darkness rules. He rules. Trapped away in holes. Hidden away in dungeons. That's captivity. That's confinement. That's covenant curse. They have become a prey, yet no one rescues them. A spoil, yet none demands restitution. There again you have the word links, plunder and spoil, to the king of Assyria in chapter 10. You have become a prey, that's a word we saw earlier, where they have become a prey to lions, to the king of Assyria's alliance or army. No one rescues them. God cannot rescue them. His servant cannot rescue them. Why? Because they haven't met the conditions for rescue or for deliverance. They've remained in their idolatrous state, their state of blindness. None demands restitution. That's uh, the extreme of injustice in which state they remain. Verse 23, Who among you hearing this will take heed of it hereafter and be mindful and obey? Who is it that hands Jacob over to plunder and Israel to the spoilers, if not the Lord, against whom we have sinned? Here we see the terms Jacob and Israel speaking of a blind and captive people and plundered people. It shows that Jacob and Israel are that level of the spiritual ladder. They're not the Zion-Jerusalem level. They're not the level of God's people that is delivered. They're a level of God's people that are God's people, but they're not in a delivered state. They're still in a fallen and lost state. Jacob or Israel is that level of the spiritual ladder. In chapter 37, in chapter 40, in chapter 41, we've seen that Zion or Jerusalem are those who are delivered. That's the next highest level on the spiritual ladder. And we saw that Zion's or Jerusalem's job or mission or commission was to minister to Jacob Israel to this lower level so that they might too become delivered. This means that if you are not Zion or Jerusalem, if you're not part of that category, when these judgments of God happen, then where will you end up? 
you'll end up plundered and destroyed. You'll end up on the destruction side of things. There is no deliverance for Jacob or Israel. There's only deliverance for Zion or Jerusalem. Because at that point in time, in the end time, the whole world goes up to a Zion level. This wicked world, this whole fallen world, is going to be destroyed. It's going to cease to exist. In the millennium, we'll have a Zion society, a Zion level of living. And if you're not part of that, you'll disappear from the face of the world. How about being mindful of this and obeying? Obeying what? The commandments of God, the will of God, the law of God. Then that won't happen to you. Then you can experience blessings instead of curse. Then there will be rescue, then there will be restitution. Then you will become illustrious. The handing of Israel, or Jacob or Israel, to plunder into the spoilers is God's consigning the wicked of his people into the power of the king of Assyria just to make sure that it's not by chance that this consignment to plunder and to destruction comes, it says, Who is it that hands Jacob over to plunder and Israel to the spoilers, if not the Lord, against whom we have sinned? This is the sinner category. In chapter 13, that sinner category was destroyed, is identified with Babylon, the sinners and the wicked of the world. For they have no desire to walk in his ways or obey his law. In the verse 24. Some do have desire, they're delivered. Some don't have desire, and so they're not delivered. The law of God is presented to them by the servant. And in effect, they reject the servant, and they reject God's law given through the servant. Just as I'm certain that there would have been Israelites in Egypt who would have rejected Moses as lawgiver, and who had nothing to do with him, or wouldn't have anything to do with him. We don't know, but there is always a division of those who leave and those who don't, those who stay behind. We have it all through Isaiah. The exodus of God's people is the great divider between the righteous and the wicked. It is a physical manifestation of the spiritual conversion and the spiritual rejection. And now we have the results, the consequences. Verse 25, So in the heat of his anger, he pours out on them the violence of war, till it envelops them in flames, yet they remain unaware Till it sets them on fire, yet they take it not to heart. They don't see the connection between their actions and the consequences. So in the heat of his anger, verse 25, he pours out on them the violence of war, till it envelops them in flames, yet they remain unaware, till it sets them on fire, yet they take it not to heart. The king of Assyria, who personifies God's anger, is given power over them, and the king of Assyria is God's instrument. It also implies that God doesn't get angry himself, in that sense that we understand, but he um, uses the king of Assyria as an instrument for destroying the wicked, which he does by fire and by the sword, the violence of war and envelops in flames. Yet they remain unaware, and they take it not to heart, implying that they remain in their state of blindness. They never make the connection between their own actions and the consequences. They never really wake up. I imagine that they still think that they see seeing much but not giving heed with open ears, hearing nothing. But to the higher realities, the spiritual realities, they never really awake to a sense of those things and probably never even know about the redemption of the righteous. Their whole reality, their total experience, is limited to this disastrous end. Wouldn't that be an awful state to be in? Think that. That's all there was. (laughs) 